and welcome to yet another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. My name is Statler. And my name is Waldorf. The angriest fans in Doctor Who fandom. It's uh, great to be with you again. And to you, Rob. And uh, it's a bit lonely in the podcasting recording studio, I think for the first time in a couple of episodes where just the two of us. And in this episode, we're going to try and uh, get the time under 60 minutes. Is that right, Rob? Well, as opposed to two hours for our two hours yes. plus, I think, for our Black 7 episode. Yes. So just for our sanity and the sanity of our listeners. So let's start the stopwatch now. <laughs> We're not a news podcast, but there's a couple of things that have happened while we've been off the air. We might uh, quickly address. You okay with that, Rob? Excellent. So the first one is Peter Capaldi and his Emmy nomination. Now, admittedly, Mark, this is a very, very long list of nominees. Where is he on the list? Wasn't the list about 110, 111, something like that? I didn't look at the list. (laughs) I saw something on the news section of Gallifrey Base that mentioned that there was 111. Now, the number 111 is uh, is an auspicious one in English cricket. I've listened to broadcasts where the broadcasters lift their feet off the ground for the duration of England being at 111. I think it has to do with Horatio Nelson having one arm one eye and <clears throat> allegedly one um, one of those. So it could be good or it could be bad for Capaldi. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I digress. Good luck, Peter. It's interesting that Doctor Who has finally cracked it for an Emmy nomination. I suppose you could class the Emmys as the BAFTAs but with better teeth. A longer red carpet, maybe? Or plush in the, in the US, I think, is befitting the American empire. It's great in terms of publicity. It, it, it keeps the show in the public eye, uh, in a sense. Though, again, it is a very, very long list. So in terms of his career, I mean, he's already got an Oscar. Why not go for the matching pair with the, with an Emmy on the TV side? This is for um, Capaldi's acting and not for the script. <laughs> well, it goes without saying, doesn't it, Mark? I actually watched Heaven Sent a couple of weeks ago. It's, uh, it's still impressed. And while I was watching it, uh, I kept thinking, I can't imagine Matt Smith or David Tennant doing this, but Capaldi nails it, and where credit is due, I think it's a fantastic script, and uh, very well directed as well. And then I made the mistake of watching uh, Hal Bent, and turned it off halfway. Um, It's interesting that you forgot to mention Christopher Eccleston, the forgotten doctor of of the modern series. He's coming to Melbourne, apparently. Is he? Yeah, he's filming a uh, show in Melbourne. Uh, TV or movie? uh, TV, I think. I was wondering, because he's done some work on the US show The Leftovers... So I don't know whether... Oh, they might be relocating here. That's right, because our, our state government here has uh, coughed up a, a great deal of money to entice uh, American production houses to Australia, specifically Melbourne. And I think The Leftovers, which Eccleston uh, has a recurring role in, I think uh, has, uh, is, is, is doing its next season here. But I might be wrong. That's what Wikipedia is for. People look it up. That's what our state budget is called, the leftovers. <coughs> I can't comment on that, you know that. Now, the other bit of news that crept onto the internet uh, over the week and left me howling, <laughs> screaming. Okay. Uh, apparently, a gentleman named Matt Lucas, who appeared in the Husbands of River song last year, yes, uh, has been, uh, it's been announced that he's going to be returning to Doctor Who not merely as a one-off, but uh, as an ongoing companion. Is that correct? This is a question I had to ask you. Is he staying the whole course of Series 10, or is it only for a couple of episodes here and there? I'm not too sure. In the spin, it didn't really sort of say, well, maybe I just missed the spin. I was too busy, as you said, howling at the moon, uh, reading it. From what the Radio Times wrote, it certainly wasn't come across, didn't come across as being just simply a one-off, mm. really. It's it appears to be ongoing for however long, but it's, it's it seems to me to be more than one episode. Now, I'll, as I said uh, uh, some time ago, I've not watched all of uh, the Husbands of Riversong, uh, so I, it, I'm not in really any place to comment on his performance other than well, I really can't, I suppose. Mark, you saw you've seen it all, I, I gather. Any well, thoughts? I saw on it once. Uh, he gives a very Matt Lucas type performance, which is very similar to a lot of performances. He has given before. I just went and saw Alice in the Looking Glass this morning with the children, and uh, as Tweedledee in Tweedledum gave a very similar performance as he did. What's the character called? Norbit? I can't remember. Uh, I, I thought this character was actually quite forgettable. Uh, look, I'm a bit. Uh, what's the word? Nonplus. Nonplus. But there's a couple of things that float through my mind. Are they trying to recreate a Donna Noble slash Catherine Tate situation where? She appeared in the one-off, and I remember when Catherine Tate was announced as a companion for Series 4, there was, let's be honest, a bit of a meltdown about it, and to her credit, I thought she was fantastic in Series 4, so maybe they're trying to uh, go for that. I just hope Matt is given some 
good material to work with and plays to his strengths. Well, there may be, in that instance there, that's actually a good point that you make, a good comparison, because they, um, they, I think they sort of rejigged Donna's character in between her first appearance and then her reappearance. I think they made her a bit softer and less harsh. Mm. So maybe, and again, not having seen the full performance, maybe they will uh, emphasise certain aspects and de-emphasise other aspects because... Um, you know, we have to just wait and see, I suppose. But it it, it does. I, I am as equally nonplussed as you. I, I've I've only ever seen him. Um, he was in Little Britain, of course. None of Little Britain sort of jived with me at all. So it'll be interesting. It's not to say that comedians can't carry dramatic roles. I mean, you know, obviously the obvious most obvious example there is Robin Williams, who made the transition seamlessly from Mork to uh, any number of Oscar-worthy uh, nominations mm. in, in movies. So. Uh, but it'll be uh, it's it's wait and see. But it's interesting that they've gone from Jenna Coleman to Matt Lucas. So, do you think the casting of Matt Lucas indicates uh, how the series for the next uh, series will, um, will, will what direction it might take? I honestly don't know. I don't know whether it's just a ratings grab saying, "Look, Matt, Matt Lucas is aboard." I actually thought it was a bit strange because you've got a new companion with Pearl Mackey uh, slash Bill. I would have thought they would have given her a bit of space to develop the character, get her established before bringing somebody on. And look, they might do that. I'm just not too sure how they're playing it out. Is it an attempt to reposition the show slightly with regards to the viewing audience? Because for whatever the strengths of last series, um, it wasn't as well received in terms of the viewing audience uh, overall. I mean, the, the audience appreciation and, and the raw numbers and the, the over, uh, you know, the, the extended numbers, I suppose, weren't as high. Mm. Is this an attempt to reposition the show back towards a more middle ground for a, for a, a wider, more populist audience? It could be. I know when the announcement was made, uh, my email box and uh, a couple of tweets and, and things like that, certainly a lot of people weren't very happy with it at all. I'm willing to give him a chance let's hope he's been he gives some good material that plays to his strengths Just i'm see. going in with an open mind oh you have to don't you, you? Have I mean, to, otherwise, yeah. otherwise you come across as a reactionary uh, fan and we don't want to do that do we no we we don't want we're to quite well measured in our approach to things <laughs> aren't you rob <laughs> i certainly wasn't well measured when i heard about it i was at work and the email came through and i thought what the f is this yes. anyway we move on we 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 embrace change in all its many forms while there's life there's hope apparently now uh our last item of news uh is not necessarily a news item as such but more an anniversary mark yes yesterday which was the 18th of june was the 50th anniversary of when Steven Taylor left the TARDIS and the Savages. So it was 50 years ago that episode 4 of that particular tale screened. Now, 2016, 50th anniversary for a few stories coming up. This, a few key stories, man. A few Mark. key stories. This will uh, neatly dovetail into the... We haven't done this for a while. The... Uh, what was it called? The International Omni Room uh, Public Alert Address System? We haven't uh, wheeled this one out for a while. I can't even let remember the, the settings. Uh, let the siren sound. There was a couple of settings. Sub-low, low, and obviously the high one. Uh, yes. Well, we know what that is, don't we, Rob? The high one is where yourself and I uh, agree to sing. Do we do a cover of Africa by Toto We could never release give, it. We can never give it justice. I want the original. <laughs> no, no, no. We've made... We've made a pact, and we will follow through, if at all possible, that uh, if a... Well, how big an announcement would it have to be, Mark, for us to, you know... One episode. (laughs) One episode. I'm happy with any scraps at the moment. Let's just go one episode. We will get up there and uh, sing Africa. Should we we get together and video record it and upload it to YouTube? We could, but... (laughs) (laughs) Pay-per-view. Would make no it, money. It may be pay per spew, Mark. It could be. It, it could be. Where are you on no. the Omni Rumor public alert uh, system at the moment, Rob? Well, Mark, you hear all sorts of chit chat and rumors, and you go and visit the various forums, and you listen to a lot of, uh, you know, smart commentary on, well, smart on based on what available information there is, which is basically nothing. And you sort of vacillate between, well, I have no idea and, well, maybe. I mean, the, the latest sort of lukewarm uh, feeling is that with, as you said, the 50th anniversary of, uh, say, the 10th planet and Troughton's first appearance and Power of the Daleks, that it is a, uh, it is a perfect time later this year for all that to be announced. Now, 
why announce it for the 50th anniversary when it could have been done for the 49th anniversary if, if you know Phil for instance had found stuff it has a neat symmetry I suppose but if for instance he found Webb an enemy back in 2011 and sat on them uh, how long would he have had to have been sitting on these stories if if he's found them four or five years if you found them at the same time as the other stories uh, that is a very long time to be sitting on stuff that, you know, anything could happen to it in the interim if it's just been stored, you know, somewhere. Where do you think he uh, recovered the material from? Well, if it's Power of the Daleks, for instance, there some fans have done some research and it, it's, it's, it's believed that there was more than one copy of Power cycling through Australia simply because of the three time zones. And, and the requirement to sort of have them play roughly at the same time across Australia, so there was at least there may have been two copies of the of the serial. So who knows? It, if that's the case, then the chances are greater than not that uh, if power has been found, it might have been found in Australia, whether one, two, four, six episodes. So I, w- I would probably plump for Australia because the rest of the world there were what three, or two or three or four copies that were sold, and that was about it. Mm. Was there any of the continents that Power of the Daleks was sold to? Like boom, there we go. Well, I mean, if it come through uh, New Zealand, then Australia. I think the cycling chain was through to Hong Kong and then Singapore. And as we found with Web Enemy, it ended up in Nigeria. Mm. Uh, but then it ended up not where we expected in Nigeria. It oh. ended up in a relay station or a TV station. So mm. I would sort of maybe think, and again, we don't know. We just really don't know. It's all complete conjecture and fan uh, rumour that maybe Australia is the, is the location. But, pff, you know, Mark. Are you willing, at the end of the year, if nothing has come out, are you willing to call time on it? No, simply because... No, no, no. And yeah, Like a junkie no, I... trying to withdraw from heroin. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I saw Jamie Foxx playing uh, Ray Charles last night on the TV and there were some very interesting with heroin withdrawal scenes there. Yeah. No, um, only I, I say that only because Phil Morris has promised in the past to tell us the, the wash-up on his search, mm. that he was talking about writing a book and uh, you know getting footage together for a documentary... So at some point, the indication to us has been that Phil will wrap it all up in a neat bow and say, guess what? I started this in 2005. It's now 2016 or 17 or 18. And this is what I found. This is what I didn't do. These are the near misses. These are the colorful anecdotes. Here is what I found. On that basis, I if it's not at the end of the year, then I'm, I'm still happy to wait. But your, your optimism my optimism begins to decline from the end of this year. Mm, okay. And it, again, it, I, I, I asked the question, after 10 years of searching, after five, having five years ago apparently found uh, Enemy and Web, why are we still waiting? I know he's a private individual and we have no business poking our nose into his private business affairs, but if it's true what people have said, that he got written authorization from the BBC, written authorization from the BFI to act in uh, in their stead going around. He is effectively f- looking for uh, material on the BBC side that was created and paid for with public money. There should be a public accounting for it. You know, five years after we have an enemy, why are we still waiting? If he is still searching, which he might be, uh, as we saw with Web Affair Part 3, where it mysteriously accidentally went walkies, he is obviously keeping things very, very stum, stopping that situation happening again. But but what that presupposes, Mark, is that a similar, situ- to, similar situation to what it described with Web and Enemy, that at that time, when he discovered them, it still took six months, months to repatriate them from Africa to Britain. Hmm. So are you saying that he may have located material but has not, you know, uh, t- been able to take them from the current holders. And that he staying silent is to stop a repeat of Web3 going walkies. That's the only thing that I, as I understand it, it could possibly be. There's two things. It could be the situation in which you just explained then, or the second is that there's so much material to go through, things have to be stabilised, they don't want to have a situation where they open up a can of uh, film and all of a sudden phew, just disintegrates into thin air. So there could be lots of care 
around the handling of uh, said hypothetical material. So Okay, so then I'll put this to you, Mark, mm -hmm. that at the October 2013 press conference, mm -hmm. a representative from TIA yep. was interviewed by uh, Gareth Kavana, ah, yes. who occasionally appears on the podcast with a K, which is the successor to the Casturbras podcast, uh, and that was broadcast. And the fellow that he spoke with, who I understand is, uh, we understand as a family member, said that hundreds of film cans were being worked on uh, at that moment. So in the context of saying that at a conference to announce the discovery of missing episodes, that indicates to me that he's referring to BBC and ITV stuff. That being said, and you know, I'm out on the limb here, I understand that, I could be completely wrong. If they're working through hundreds of items and it's almost three years ago, you would expect that those hundreds of items surely would have been catalogued by now. If and, and they're in the hands of Tia, why don't we know anything about those hundreds of items? What is taking so long? He's still searching and doesn't want to disclose anything until his search as he sees fit is over. So when he says he has searched, well, when he thinks he's searched as much as he can and gone everywhere he'd go to and is satisfied with himself that he's done as much as he can, he might announce it. Look, we're all, uh, you know, we're all speculating on hypotheticals, really, because we don't know anything. So, But the thing is, Mark, he's done the hard yards in the difficult countries. I mean, mm. Nigeria is not a picnic. He says he's been to Syria, of all godforsaken places. The rest of the world is gravy. If he's been to the Antipodes, Australia and New Zealand, that's, that's a walk in the park. If he's been to Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, if he's been to Singapore, you know, if he's been to any of the other ex-Commonwealth countries in the Caribbean, um, they're, they're relatively easy walks in the park. So the hard stuff has been done. Again, why are we still waiting? I understand your point that he doesn't, that he may not be wanting to upset the apple cart, that he may have located stuff and is waiting to repatriate it. Say something. Why, why are we left hanging for? And again, I recognise the point that he's a private individual in a private pursuit, but there, there's a larger public thing here that hangs over it, which is the cultural history, a segment of the cultural history of the UK. And it's not a question of fan entitlement that we need to know everything that's going on, but I really believe that he started in 2005. He had his first major success in 2011. It took two years to say anything, and you know we sort of believe that it was like pulling hen's teeth to get it out. And if it wasn't for the anniversary, he may still have been sitting on them, perhaps. And then it's five years since then, and still we know nothing. That's where I stand. I mean, it, it is frustrating because you know you check the forums and you listen to people and blah 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 blah. And we, we you know, it's it's a conversation that goes around and around and around and around and around. Mm. And people claw at each other and they just get frustrated with the whole thing. And I understand, you know, that um, Phil might have his motives, but just throw a dog a bone, you know, throw a dog a bone. Go to another convention and have another, you know, hour-long chat to the to the fans there, and just give us something. Well, there might be a couple of conventions uh, coming up in the UK where things might happen. You just don't know, Rob. We don't know. So I've been ranting for the last ten minutes. You have Did been. you have any opinions? No, I want to go back to the Stephen Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have brought up the Omni Rumor, sorry. Uh, I just want to get back to Stephen Taylor. Uh, look, you've said what, what I was thinking anyway. I, I'm a bit more, uh, what's the word? I'm not as caught up in it as probably what you are. I skirt on the periphery. Uh, you're in the trenches, your finger ready on the F5 button on Planet Mondas. Quite a bit, <laughs> I gather. So, look, I'm, look, I'm quietly cautious but and optimistic. But I think by the end of the year, if nothing has uh, happened uh, in light of these 50th anniversaries of many things happening, uh, I think we all should emotionally move on. I disagree. Until Phil says it's over, it's not over. Okay, I might, just, basically. I might just tweet him and ask him, is it over? I would suggest that perhaps there was a strategic mistake by the BBC and the BFI to allow all their eggs to be put into one basket, perhaps. To allow one person the accreditation to go around that maybe several uh, or other parties should have been involved perhaps but that would have involved spending money and actually and getting real... off their asses and actually going getting on a plane and going to these places because they've actually yes. done it 20 years before uh we would have a lot more uh back in the archives as opposed to making phone calls and, assu and, and assuming people are actually on the other end are going to get off their bottoms and walk down to a, a vinegar soaked storage facility and go rifling through old uh, film cans. That's yeah. preposterous. Back to Stephen <laughs> Taylor. Under, <laughs> yes. Underrated? I think he's underrated. I, uh, I, I think it's generally uh, 
you know, credited that coming a second lead almost. And I think he's really underrated. I really enjoy listening. Unfortunately, you can't watch much of him. But when I do listen to uh, some of his stories, season three, a really dynamic character, and when he's given great material like in the massacre, uh, enjoyable to listen to. It appears that he's he more or less held the show together uh, mm. in, in that later portion of the Hartnell era, yeah. and I, I, I sort of um, I rate him with uh, with William Russell in, in terms of probably being you know the two of the better or best male leads in the Hartnell era, and in, in actual fact, the black and white era. Mm. And it's great that Peter Purves uh, uh, is still willing to give back to the show in terms of, you know, I mean, obviously the money is good or goodish, but, you know, you, you hear him doing readings and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, being involved with Big Finish, I think, and uh, making appearances and all that, uh, he's still, obviously, the show has a warm, uh, he's still warm towards the show, even after incredibly 50 years. Yeah, I still remember him from Blue Peter. That's how old I am. Uh, you never got that over here, did we? Did you, I should say? No, I don't believe we did. Oh, okay. must have been a wrench for you, Mark, to have to put up with, say, Play School instead. We had Play School over there as well. It was a bit of a wrench, but we had Shell's Neighbourhood over here, so it did uh, make up for it. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, YouTube uh, Shell's Neighbourhood people for a, a bit of a cultural shock, but anyway. Absolutely. We've spoken far too long on our allotted time for that segment, Rob, so... The 60 minutes is in peril, Mark. We'll, we'll, we'll forge on. Now, Mark, we're going to road test a new segment. It is a long, long year without any show to actually talk about. So I've been workshopping uh, in the downtime at work. Uh, a new segment, which is we're, we're sort of, uh, I don't know, somewhere in between opposites of track we're calling it or the versus segment. The general idea, and it may evolve over time. It may even be dropped if it doesn't work this time. So strap yourselves in, folks. We're going to pick two uh, things from Doctor Who and, and just sort of uh, compare them uh, and see which we uh, prefer. We may take a humorous uh, slant on them. We may take a serious uh, a go at them. We'll choose two monsters or two doctors or two planets or two ideas or concepts and pitch them against each other and one of us will champion one and the other will champion another. It could be worse. We could be doing DVD commentary, so we've got to give this a go. <laughs> An episode a week, people. How do you do it? <laughs> all power to you, seriously. Yeah, all power to you and your Patreon accounts. Hey, no. Come on, come on. <laughs> no, fair enough. We'll have two stabs at it, I think, Mark. Yes. Well, not I think. We've actually discussed it previously, so we will. Uh, the first one, we'll be going, uh, we'll be discussing where the scenario will be where intergalactic tourists, uh, so we're already doing a humorous slant here, we're intergalactic tourists, and our travel agent has said to us on our budget, all we can afford is either a trip to Mondas or a trip to Scaro. The agony of choice, Rob. We're those, <laughs> we're those guys in the uh, Delta and Abandonment on the bus. We're about to get on the bus. We're just about to leave North Wales. And all of a sudden, uh, we get hit by... What is it? The, the, the Bannerman. So, uh, yes. Mm. Something like that. Yeah, uh, something like that. So, yes. Bannerman Intergalactic Tours, I think, is uh, our tour guides this time around. Look, I've talked enough already, Mark, so I'll let you go uh, and uh, go right ahead and uh, give your spiel. Okay, so I've chosen the side of Mondas as a mm. holiday destination. So, uh, the, uh, the upside down planet that we all should go and visit? Absolutely, because let's be honest, um, if you get fed up with a view, you can just engage the inbuilt propulsion system and. Put, 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 round the galaxy until you find a better view, which hopefully doesn't involve uh, draining planet's energy. So, uh, and also because it's so cold there, the the skiing is marvelous. There's snow all year round, and if you injure yourself or break a leg or any bones, you get instant replacement. And if the pain's all too much, you just get your emotions removed. There you go. You don't feel a thing. The only issue with Mondas is that. Uh, as I mentioned before, their energy draining uh, capabilities. Nobody invented the off switch. So when they actually sucked all the, all the energy from Earth, nobody well, nobody invented the off switch. It just kept going and going and going and, and disintegrated. So that's probably a slight flaw in it. But in terms of a, a conversion program, all the Mondasians were all for it. There was no sort of namby-pandy uh, Garmin's on Scaro who were you know rallying against it. The, the Mondasians embraced it. Uh, so much that they wore stockings on their heads. <laughs> so if I had the choice between uh, Mondas or Scaro, I'd be uh, plumbing for Mondas 
every day. And the thing is, when it blew up, it stayed blown up. And I think the beauty is that uh, post-1986, you can't go back. But if you have a time machine, you can take future dollars back and, uh, and just live large, perhaps, because it'll be perhaps a little bit cheaper. You could. That's Mondas for you, in a nutcase. <laughs> the stocking Mondasians remind me of the uh, Melbourne band uh, Tism. Oh, yes. I'm on the drug that, uh, yes. <laughs> Killed the, the Phoenix. Said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're laughing about it, but have a look on YouTube. Uh, Tism is the band, and they did a song called I'm on the Drugs that Killed River Phoenix 20-odd years ago. There's precisely one listener, uh, assuming his shift is uh, long and boring, he'll understand what we're talking about. <laughs> All right, so you've grabbed the, the delights, uh, the sterile, emotionless delights of Mondas. With superb skiing. With uh, the slopes, mate. The slopes are all year round. I, of course, have Scaro. Now, what a lot of you people don't really know is that I have uh, an unhealthy interest in... Omni-Rumor. Uh, well, that... My other unhealthy interest is in, let's be frank, the Nazis. As, <laughs> as a friend of mine who come around once said, looking at my bookshelf, Rob, you've got a lot of books on Nazis, don't you? And... Uh, so that's why Scaro, with its uh, you know, radiological, biological, and chemical delights, is the place to see. Not only uh, will you be faced with a barren wasteland of you know, a destroyed civilization, but you can relive in a safe science fictional uh, version of the horrors of the Nazi era. Uh, Davros, of course, uh, will be your tour guide as he sizes you up for potential genetic material. Is he opening his eyes when he does it? <laughs> Yep. All three of Davros's eyes will open up and, mm. uh, and and keep an eye on you. Uh, it is it is disaster tourism at its very best. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there today who would skirt the fringes of, say, Syria, of some of the hell holes of Africa, or even the, the dubious delights of the hermit kingdom in North Korea. But really, I think Scaro is the ultimate disaster holiday that you, the listener, you, the podcast downloader, should uh, should enjoy. And to be frank, if your bent is for the far right, uh, and let's hope that there are no far right nutbags listening to this podcast, you should be out there, uh, you know, spruiking for the leave option, you goddamn bastards. Scaro is the place to be. And uh, as I discovered last night going to a production of The Sound of Music here in Melbourne, which unexpectedly at the very end had Nazi symbolism every which way on stage and off. They, they actually, in the, if, obviously we've all seen Sound of Music and the, it's, you know, in 1938, the Anschluss with, with Austria and the Germans take over. They had, with the Sound of Music, that delightful family production slash movie. They had a massive swastika projected onto the screen at the, at the, at the theatre. There were huge vertical banners with the swastika, it was it was particularly confronting. Men wearing swastika armbands, and I'm thinking, what are my children taking away from? They're handing out ice creams, were they? No, they were actually as part of the production. Jesus, um, it, there was there was plenty of salutes with the word Heil. Now I would have thought that they might have gone with Heil Hitler because you've gone with the swastika. But obviously there are lines that people will not go over. So, mm. But going back to Scaro, if your bent is for the fascist, if your bent is for the totalitarian dictator and Donald Trump, Donald Trump's election is still too far away for you, then I think Scaro is the place to be. Please take your own radiation suit, take your own radiation meter, take your own iodine tablets, and hopefully you've made a deposit at the sperm bank because you'll need it. But Scaro is the place to be. Uh, listeners, if you would like to vote on this, please ring this number. Thirteen hundred fascist. Yeah, actually, remember that song in the eighties called "The Hitler Rap" by Mel Brooks? Yeah, I'm vaguely familiar yeah, with it. I look, the lyrics are inappropriate. It was back then as well. Um, but I heard the song on the radio, like the opening fanfare kicks off, and I thought, "Oh my god, they're actually going to play it!" But they played the instrumental version. They wouldn't play the uh, version with the lyrics, so. Hmm. And look, having said all I've said, this is a few days after the British MP Joe Cox was uh, murdered uh, in our own constituency. So uh, I I do reflect upon that. And uh, if I've offended anyone by my uh, faux enthusiasm, uh, apologies there. Uh, And good luck, Britain, with uh, leaving the EU. It's cold and dark outside. And good luck with all that. Yes. 
just to be honest, I was really surprised actually seeing the sound of music, as I said before. They did, uh, in those last scenes, have uh, the swastika uh, very front and centre. Uh, and it's all to the purpose of demonstrating... Shock value? The, confronting? The, con the, the context in which the production is, yeah. is set. I was really surprised that they, they, they would go that far. But you know, knowing the story, it's, it's, it is understandable. What did your kids say? Uh, well, I had to, well because one of the one of the young von Trapp children uh, refers to the swastika as a black spider, uh, which got a, a laugh, uh, sort of a relieved laugh from the audience. Mm. Uh, and my youngest daughter mentioned that as well, and I, I gave them a bit of a, a bit of a uh, a very very you know the one hundred and one on um, on what the swastika is and and uh, its sort of historical derivation, and it's not necessarily always associated with a disgusting genocidal regime that it, it has a sort of a mystical significance uh, right across the world in, in North America and, and in Asia, uh, India as well. So I was actually confronted by the imagery because they have no historical context for it. They, they don't have the reading. They're just too young for that sort of thing. I gave them a very, <laughs> a very brief 101 on uh, the terrible people who did terrible things during the 30s and 40s. The, the world is a difficult place, a difficult enough place at the moment as, as it is. So they don't need to sort of go into the the, the nitty-gritty of a, a terrible period in history. So You didn't feel like showing them Let's Kill Hitler? Uh, I don't want to scar them. Should we move on to our next opposite attract? Mark, uh, you're going with? Uh, we're looking at unlikely romantic pairings, or likely romantic pairings in Doctor Who. The options are? Joe Grant and Bill Fowler from The Claws of Axos. Fowler, the man with the biggest uh, sideburns known to man. The cyber-converted Lytton pairing up with the cyberwoman, from that uh, Chris Chibnall classic, uh, Cyberwoman. <laughs> Hence the name Cyberwoman, yes. I had uh, Tegan and Turlow, a uh, disturbing mix, and also one slightly out of left field, uh, Drax and Jenny. <laughs> and I know which one I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Mark. Well, there's, no, with... there's nothing really to say. I just thought... If they, <laughs> if, oh, right, if, okay. If really, I mean, uh, unlikely romantic pairings, Joe Grant and Bill Fowler. I mean, Bill Fowler... Is Bill Fowler, CIA. Was he? he was CIA, CIA man. CIA was man in Owen. Gotta get the master. There you go. I think she'd be swept off her feet by the sort of dashing uh, American, uh, you know, come to Britain um, to sort things out. I think she'd keep him uh, on a very tight leash until she got her hands on uh, Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones. Calling okay. Dr. Jones. That sounds like a song from the 90s, doesn't it? Possibly. And, and cyber-converted Lytton, well, he hasn't got much option, really, has he? Well, no, considering that he's dead. But uh, That's right, and Cyberwoman is... What happened to her? I can't remember. That involved me watching it again. I don't really want to watch it again. I didn't mind it. I know I'm going to get castigated for that, but uh, that's fair enough. But I didn't actually mind it. I mean, sort of the costume that, you know, was ridiculous. No, not ridiculous. It was uh, unfortunate. Cyber-porn. Why, why would a cyberwoman have um, a massive breastplate? Why would you need breasts? The, the only the only reason to have breasts really is for lactation. You're not producing any progeny, so why do you need breasts? The cyber controller needs a good talking to, I think. Well, he had a very large breast, didn't he? In Attack of the Cybermen. Uh, he was more like a the, fat controller than... The, the years are unkind to all of us, Mark, all right? They are, certainly to the... All right, so my, my options were Tegan and Turlow uh, versus uh, Drax and Jenny. Whilst... The romantic uh, stylings of Tegan and Turlow would have been horrifying and thus entertaining. Uh, I've gone for Drax and Jenny only because it's not, it's not a traditional romantic pairing. It's a pairing of convenience because I think it's fair to say that Jenny is, in each of their appearances, the, 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 uh, the Paternoster gang, mm. it, it, it's increasingly obvious to me at least that Jenny is growing increasingly fed up with how Madame Vastra is treating her. It's dawning on her that she is merely a sex object for Madame Vastra. There's no real love there. It's just reptilian lust powering that relationship. So I can see Jenny teaming up with the completely stupid Drax in a conspiracy to kill Madame Vastra for its vengeance, basically. It's an Agatha Christie thing. Think of it like this. It's an Agatha Christie thing where, you know, the most unlikely person in the room is the killer. So Jenny and Drax are my unlikely pairing because A, it'll be entertaining, and B, Madame Vastra is for the hijack. It sounds like Terror of the Vervoids. <laughs> the most <laughs> unlikely person uh, being the uh, 
the, the, the criminal. The thing is with, with Tegan and Turlo getting together, is that why Chameleon disappeared for six months? Because he saw what was going on and was uh, horrified by it. <laughs> and, he, and that deleted scene in The Awakening where he plugs himself into the TARDIS, he saw too much and uh, he said, I can't have this, and went off to a cupboard and cried. Um, yes. Because, I mean, you, you look through the history of Doctor Who and you think, oh, some of these characters could, could perhaps have paired off. You could possibly see Sarah Jane and Harry. Uh, Harry in the sort of takes the, the role of the wife at home, you know, the stay-at-home husband, and Sarah's off having um, having a career. Uh, Tegan and Turlow would last... Uh, Three minutes. I don't know. It, it would be uh, a, you know, a relationship that would swing from pillar to post, wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. Lovey-dovey, a brawl, lovey-dovey, a brawl. I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable with this conversation. So. Adric and Nissa? Oh, God. There's another one. The shiver that went down my spine, Mark, is... Uh, Multiplying? It's painful. <laughs> mm, All right. All right. So that's our opposites yeah. attract. So whether that lasts, Mark and I will have a review at the end of this. But uh, if anyone out there listening has uh, any um, thoughts or ideas or nominees, nominees, that's the word I'm looking for, please tweet us or send an email uh, and uh, we'll have a chat about them uh, in future episodes. You've got mail. And now it's time for our long overdue letters segment, Rob. Huzzah. Huzzah. Okay, the first one is from Ben Schneider from the USA. All hail our future overlord, Donald Trump. <sighs> um, <laughs> if that happens, I'm em- emigrating to the moon. Although you'd probably blow it up by then. <laughs> yes. We can't talk about our uh, federal election here, can we, Rob? You can, I can't. Okay, excellent. All right, so Ben says, Hello, Ben. Uh, I'd like to know where you're actually from in the USA. I should actually find that out. Hello, guys. Sorry I haven't left much feedback lately. I was able to listen to your last episode with Doc Hume, and I wanted to congratulate you guys. That was a really great and honest conversation. I especially loved hearing everyone's off-the-cuff analysis on the twisty-turny way the fans take hardline stances, create opinions based on us and them, sideline each other, etc. As you pointed out, online fandom has almost turned into a metaphor for how divided American political thinking has become. And that is scary to see in something like Doctor Who, a thing that I personally use as an escape from reality, like the American politics I'm forced to live with. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the part of the episode where you and Doc Whom were talking about the Doctor Who reconstructions and missing episodes. I think it was you, not Rob, I think it means me, uh, who said that he couldn't handle the reconstructions, so you listened to the narrated audio soundtracks instead. I was wondering, have you ever seen the stuff online where fans combine the narrated BBC soundtracks with the loose cannon recons. I was like you. Years ago, when I first heard that the recons I sent out were a few blank videotapes to loose cannon, but I hated them. The sound was crap, the pictures were blurry and low res, and it was just boring. On the other hand, I adored the narrated BBC soundtrack and bought every one. I liked them so much, I was initially turned off by Big Finish because they didn't have narration. Anyway, about seven years ago, I started to find on YouTube where people way smarter than me had synced up the narrated CDs with loose cannon reconstructions. And I have to tell you, it was like night and day. I suddenly felt like I was not only hearing, but seeing Lost Doctor Who. The problem was BBC was policing the content, and they often reported to YouTube the channels that hosted these recons as illegally using their copyright stuff. To this day, I can still watch them on my iPod going to work on the bus or in waiting rooms, or at night in bed when I can't sleep. I swear Dalek Master Plan is amazing. Keep up the great work, Ben Schneider. Thanks, Ben. Have you sat down and watched the reconstruction re- recently? No, I, I think um, I, I was also I also said on that uh, podcast with Doc Hume that I can't I can't sit down. I a I just don't have the time, and B when I have tried to do it, it it's not the same. It's I I'm I'm just used now to listening to soundtracks. I listen, listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, a lot of radio, so. I'm I'm quite happy to uh, just listen to the soundtracks as they exist at, uh, today. Um, I don't I don't visually find them uh, particularly appealing, but of course, uh, as with anything, if the if, if you the listener and and watcher of them uh, enjoy listening to them, then fantastic. You're you're clearly saying something that I'm I'm incapable of doing. Um, so more power to you. But for me, um, uh, the ease and the convenience of the soundtracks is the way to go. Hopefully, just going back to the Omni Rumor that Phil can pull his finger out and tell us one way or the other so that we don't have to listen to soundtracks anymore. But, um, yeah, if you, if you like them, great, fantastic. More power to you, and I hope you really enjoy it. And just to touch on Ben's point about uh, divided online fandom, um, I think 
not to be patronising, but, but but people online need to realise that uh, it is a television show, and that the fixed positions that people take uh, are completely unnecessary. It is the easiest uh, and most pleasant thing in the world to be able to appreciate someone else's viewpoint, and whether you regard them as simply misguided or completely stupid is beside the point. They have an opinion, just as you do, and fandom, online fandom will be a far better place if people cut each other a lot of slack, and unless you're a complete tool and thoroughly objectionable, then you deserve everything you cop. But for the rest of us, um, you know, it's Doctor Who. The whole, sto- whole series, the whole show is about tolerance and, and, and coming together and working for a common goal you know, in part. So it sort of embrace the show's ethos or just bugger off. Fair enough. Sorry, I got on a soapbox there. I, I apologise. That's okay. How is Planet Mondas going? It has its cycles. Uh, the, the moderators uh, stamped, <laughs> pulled out the hammer uh, about a week ago. And uh, But uh, if, if, you know, with Planet Mondas, um, if people come up with interesting theories or thoughts about the whole uh, nightmare, um, then other people will respond in kind. It's those people who deliberately post in an inflammatory way uh, designed simply to get a rise out of other people uh, that, that sort of make it into a bit of a cesspit sometimes. But um, sometimes you, you, you have to be the better person and not rise to the bait as well. So It's not heavily uh, policed like uh, our post Gallifrey is, is it? Um, it? It does talk about being, you know, uh, free speech for Doctor Who fans, but um, it's, it's never promised complete free speech. It's always uh, promised maximum free speech. And again, I suppose uh, it is a private thing. And if you don't like the way it's moderated, uh, as um, the uh, owner of the site has said, you can, you're can you free to bugger off somewhere else. Uh, the idea is for fans to come together. and Like, like any forum, any online forum, is just to come together and, and have a discussion. It's the nature of online fandom. You and I, if we're in the same room, would never say some of the things people online say to each other. Because we're civilized, and then when you get together in civilized company, you do not deliberately needle someone to the point of them wanting to punch you in the face, which is what online fandom frequently does. So when you have a massive site like uh, Gallifrey Base, where to try and police everything is an impossibility, you have to come down hard uh, frequently just to nip things in the bud. Let's move on to our next letter, which right. is from JR Southall from the Blue Box podcast, who I think is talking about. The politics podcast, the one I wasn't on. Yes, you're sadly absent, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Do you know why? Because I only put the music in, and then I downloaded it when it was finished, and I felt like, oh, this is how a punter uh, would feel getting an episode of 42 to Doomsday. So I actually really enjoyed having that uh, sensation. JR writes, uh, is my accent not authentic then? No, but you know, we, we don't attempt to do any of the multifarious uh, accents of the UK. So I could try. Yeah, you are from the U of K, aren't you, mate? Wales, yes. I did enjoy the rest of the podcast, though, even if leaving out the beast below was, in my opinion, a little bit of an oversight. Not that I think it does its politics terribly well, but I'd have been interested to hear David's opinion on that. Uh, just on that point, um, yeah, looking back, <laughs> we completely missed talking about it, but I, I think, well, hopefully we, we covered a whole lot of other... Uh, areas of the show that, that touch on politics to, to have compensated for it. Uh, but uh, fair point. Uh, uh, Jaya goes on, and you almost touched on the subject I get the feeling is becoming increasingly an issue in various parts of fandom, where people are reading the politics, social, sexual, and so on, of various episodes through the lens of their own ideology and agenda, but without taking account of the intentions of the text, and thus concluding that the stories are dealing with those issues badly, when in fact they're probably not actually dealing with those issues at all. One that struck me recently was Osgood's refusal to reveal to the Doctor whether she was human or Zygon was, in fact, because she was analogous to a transgender person who was refusing to reveal which genitals she was in possession of. It's one thing seeing that kind of stuff as a kind of bonus level of interactivity with the program, but complaining that it isn't there in other episodes or that it does badly in the ones you see it in is a bit of a stretch, when it's almost certain that the authors of the story weren't thinking along those lines at all. And so we responded to JR thusly. Uh, glad you enjoyed the podcast. Happy to acknowledge having uh, left our beast below uh, as being an oversight. But as you know, it's always hard to try to fit 50 years of TV into a 90-minute podcast. Uh, I understand the point you're making. The abortion debate around Kill the Moon was another example of people looking for meaning that simply wasn't there in a story about the moon being an egg. Uh, we very deliberately tried to stick to overt messaging rather than a more speculative text analysis for exactly that reason. 
Although we felt confident enough about some of RTD's work to acknowledge that there was potentially another layer there in some of his episodes, if you want to look for it. As we said in the podcast, Doctor Who is first and foremost entertainment, not about pushing messaging. So yes, you're on a very slippery slope if you try to seek messaging, and in a lot of trouble if you expect it. But then, didn't people do the same with the Beatles songs 50 years ago? Again, often coming up with messages that were totally wrong. Uh, thank you, JR, for those those thoughts. Um, it, it, politics is, as we're discovering, uh, <laughs> and as we can keep on discovering, is very contentious. And when you, you're looking for a deeper meaning, uh, you can find whatever you're looking for, basically. You can, you can put any gloss on anything and uh, and find it and uh, even in a show that's 50 years old so sometimes uh, as as freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and not anything else so uh first and foremost doctor who is entertainment uh, and anything else after that is a bonus uh, that you don't necessarily need to shove down people's throats or criticize the program for not uh playing up now it's getting on to about a month ago i think now mark um i was uh i was bored and I tweeted a, uh, a question to our, uh, our Twitter followers. And I asked uh, something to the effect of uh, what were the... Oh, yes, I'd had been uh, reflecting on um, the Ark in Space. And I tweeted that Noah reacting to his infected arm in Ark in Space may be the most chilling moment of 70s Doctor Who. And I asked, what was yours? And uh, we got some responses, which was very nice. First one is from uh, Kieran Hyman. Uh, he says, Starman lifting the blast door and the primords coming through in Inferno. Had nightmares after that. Uh, David Kitchen, our erstwhile political commentator. Uh, Keeler's uh, You Want Me to Die in Seeds of Doom um, uh, was, uh, was his nomination. And uh, the whole, all of Seeds of Doom is particularly chilling. It's quite gruesome, uh, isn't it, really? It, it, you, yeah. You, those three, you, you can all, you can see there that the, the idea of people transforming into other things is one that gets under the skin. Literally, uh, no, no pun intended. Literally, mm. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, the next one was from Bernard JKD. Please, Lord, I am your faithful servant. I am Sutek's servant. He needs no other. Zzz, uh, which uh, was from Pyramids of Mars. That's uh, that's the when the dry ice comes out to play. Is that right? Yes, and the uh, organ music. Uh, reaches that uh, chilling crescendo. Yes. Now, was it you who tweeted, Mark, that the Zygon Harry attacking Sarah with a pitchfork was chilling stuff? Was that you? No, I don't think. I don't know who that was, but uh, that's yeah, a very good choice. That yeah, very good choice. Actually, that that whole sequence um, in uh, Terror of the Zygons, where Harry's hunting Sarah, mm. sorry, the the Harry duplicate is hunting Sarah, is uh, near the knuckle. Uh, but uh, no, that, that yeah. Near the knuckle is all I'll say on that. Sorry, last one's from Brendan Jones, who is from the Flight Through Entirety podcast. I've been saying for the last four months, Flight Through Eternity. It's actually Flight Through Entirety, so I apologise for that. Uh, he says, Romana going off the cliff in Stones of Blood. That scream. I haven't seen Stones of Blood for years. I'll have to... Dig it out. I'll have to... Well, I don't actually have the key to the time. So Haven't I'll you? Have save... Oh, dear. I'll have to save my shekels and... Uh... Yes. Actually, can the BBC just release those as individual episodes? Uh, I'm sorry, titles now? Nah. No, oh, the TV is deleting them. So, uh, <laughs> if I were you, I'd be getting those shackles sorted out very quickly. Get your hands in that title before it's gone, gone, gone. The only one I had to add to that was uh, Death of the Daleks Part 3, where the tiles come out to uh, Minister Doctor and uh, the Exelon. Was it Bilal? His name was. Was that chilling for you? Was it not? No, not really. If anyone uh, listening uh, has uh, has their um, their top picks for the most chilling moment of seventies Doctor Who, um, please drop us a line. We'd love to read them out uh, and have a little chat about them. So, so that was our letters section, people. And now it's time for our last segment. What have we been watching? So in the gap year, you know, we haven't merely been sitting around waiting for Doctor Who to come on. We've actually been watching other other stuff, haven't we, Mark? Yes, we've been unfaithful yet again. Well, what could we have done between 89 and 2005? <laughs> Except other, be, be unfaithful. Sorry. I was hanging on to those VHS releases every month. Time of the Rani and Mark of the Rani in one month. You can't get better than that. Did you buy all the VHSs when they came out? Yep. 
and sold them. Managed to sell a lot of them actually. I used to sell them. They used to do the announcement of this is what's coming out for the next six months. I go, okay, it's safe to sell that one, safe to sell that one, and get them all on eBay. And and most of them, actually I think about 99% of them sold. Uh, hmm. So yeah, I don't have any VHS releases. What'd you do with the 1%? Did you pile them in the backyard, strip down to your underpants, set them on fire and dance around them while doing the Dahlia Derbyshire thing? That was the, the year tapes. I think I took them down to a second-hand CD shop and got rid of them in the end or donated them to charity and said, look, here you go. Um, I'm not giving you a VHS player either. I haven't got a VHS player anyway, so... I um, uh, I never bought all of them. Um, I got... I think I... I know I got the Five Doctors several times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Caves, I think I bought. I, it, it was just a... At the time that they started to sort of come out, I was living away from home and I had limited space and even limited, more limited money. And I did move back home for a few years uh, after university and uh, my household, as I've mentioned before, is not was not a household conducive to Doctor Who watching. So it's not as if I was going to sit there and while my parents paraded around while I was watching Doctor Who. I didn't, I didn't need that aggro in my life. So No, I never bought them, but when the DVDs come out, I'd, I'd at that stage sort of moved out again permanently. Um, and, and and bought the DVDs in their stead. So so I bought the Tomb of the Cybermen secondhand uh, when it came out. I was very excited. Even though I didn't have a VHS player, I watched it on a friend. VHS had been for big money, actually, in the early 2000s. Like, I remember uh, copies of things like the Demons and the War Games, uh, even, God forbid, the Web Planet, were going for fairly big money. Cause, were, um, were they the BBC, the, sorry, the, the UK releases yeah, or the Australian? Oh, I think the UK more than the Australian releases. So, yeah. 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 Well, and then a lot of buyers were remorse when the DVD started coming out. Yeah, exactly. I had, the, I had a, a big cupboard and a heaving uh, shelf under the load of VHS tapes. So, Mark, in this interminable interregnum of uh, no Doctor Who, uh, which I'm suffering from no withdrawal symptoms, frankly, uh, what have you been uh, watching to replace that gaping hole in your heart? Just finished off uh, Daredevil Series 2. Punisher. Punisher. Very good. Mr. Burnthal yes. as the Punisher. Yes, uh, brilliant piece of casting. A, a very vast improvement over Dolph Lundgren's uh, Punisher. It was the 80s, Mark. What can you expect? Yeah, yeah. But uh, sets it up very well for a ongoing Punisher series. Uh, also, Series 1 of Robin of Sherwood. One of those other shows uh, like Black 7 I'd actually never seen before when I thought, well, you know, um, time to pull the finger out. And uh, I just finished watching Series 1. Uh, looks great. It was shot on film. So I know there was an un unfair comparison between Doctor Who uh, in the mid-80s to Robin and Sherwood, but I really don't blame it because the production values do look fantastic. A uh, bit of mysticism added uh, into the uh, traditional Robin Hood tales, so a bit of her and the hunter. Um, hmm. It's Look, it's, it's dated in places, uh, especially the opening uh, title sequence, but... Uh, it was the 80s, man. It was the 80s, but it looks great and uh, very very well cast. couple of uh, Who celebrities in there as well. Uh, I will continue on and go forth and watch uh, Series 2 and 3. I think Series 3 is when uh, Jason Connery comes on into the, into the picture. So I'll watch Season that. 3, I think it is, Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. Just on Robin of Sherwood, I've confessed to not... I've got them on the shelf. I've never watched them, so I've pulled oh. it at some point. My my abiding memory of Robin of Sherwood, there were um, a couple of novelizations of the TV series which I read when I was at uh, let me say high school I think mm. yeah I'll be in the right age, and for those of you out there who read the uh, the fighting fantasy style game books from that era, there were two titles uh, based on the Robin of Sherwood, um, which I have uh, series, uh, which were also quite entertaining so yeah the, the mystical aspect of it um the fantasy aspect of it her and the hunter and all that sort of thing uh appealed to me so but yeah i, I would very much like to um, watch them i remember watching the uh, robin hood series that the bbc did about me i don't know maybe nine eight years ago and that was much more um family populist viewing uh as opposed to what was happening in, in robin of sherwood but um i think they both have their merits yeah, there was uh, well that that and the Merlin um, were sort of 
riffing off the Doctor Who template were, weren't they? Yeah, they were actually, yeah, you're right. Structure and uh, an appeal to a broader audience. Yeah. That Robin of Sherwood is very fondly regarded by those who, I think, watched it back in the day. Line of Duty 3, a complete contrast there. Fantastic police drama on the, on the edge of your seat stuff. Parallels to uh, Operation Nutri, it was happening in the UK. Yeah. Not, not parallels, <laughs> no, plundering. It was... The use of Jimmy Savile's uh, and yes. Long he role and Burn in Hell. Um, his image was very striking when I saw that. Yeah, very uncomfortable. But did I? I thought uh, series two was slightly better mm. because I think Gilly Hawes, uh, her predicament and eventual fate, uh, resonated more with me. Not that I've been to prison, but <laughs> resonated more with me than series three. Mm. But uh, my wife and I were uh, we we watched that and we we loved series three again. Um, mm. Very very enjoyable. And uh, going back to Doctor Who, I have watched a bit of Doctor Who. Why would you do that for? I don't know. Look, I watched Carnival of Monsters on the uh, 20th anniversary of John Pertwee's death. I thought I wanted to uh, mark it in some ways. And I thought, what's a Pertwee I could watch that's not six episodes and is not three Doctors? Uh, And I plumbed for Carnival of Monsters. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so did my uh, nine-year-old son. As I said before, I watched Heaven Sent as well to... uh, prove a point that I'm not completely anti-Moffat and uh, I've just started watching uh, Image of the Fendale uh, along with Horror Fang Rock are the best Doctor Who stories that uh, Philip Hinchcliffe didn't produce it's a bizarre season isn't it at season 15 like it starts off Horror Fang Rock dark and gritty and goes to Invisible Enemy then Image of the Fendale Image and and Horror very much are, are Hinchcliffe they're adjacent to Hinchcliffe if not part of the Hinchcliffe canon um yeah, and it's interesting that they, I suppose, either Williams sort of came late to the process and didn't have much of an impact on those two particular stories because they, they feel very much like uh, uh, a Hinchcliffe-produced um, uh, sort of uh, you know duo, especially the bit where, now is it Colby blows his brains out? No, I think it's... Um, Fendel- Fendelman? No, it's either Fendelman or Max. Yeah. Halfway right. through that, very, very good. That started off with Horror Fang Rock and then the image of the Fendal. Uh, you would not think that the uh, producer had moved on. No, that's right. But that's right. you can tell with the visible, invisible enemy that something's gone or slightly awry. Well, it, it falls off a cliff. It's, it's, if you diagram it, it's a peak and then a very deep trough and then a peak again and down we go. <laughs> Is it Underworld then Sun Makers or Sun Makers then Underworld then Invasion of Time? I, I Yeah. It sort of bumps along a bit of a trough towards the end. Mm. No, I'd love to be the fly on the wall of a you know a Doctor Who fan back in the day who loved Hinchcliffe and then was uh, confronted with the Williams the sort of the uh, up and down start to the Williams era. We don't we we don't. What have you been watching, Rob? I've I've gone on a bit of a seventies conspiracy thriller paranoia bend with or bent with uh, with movies. So I've. Uh, Purchased and have been watching movies like uh, The Conversation uh, and Blowout and uh, the, I think it's The Parallax the Parallax Factor, which are all uh, quintessential uh, 1970s it, it, movies, uh, American movies. It, it, that, that whole era that, you know, from, from Watergate through to uh, the basic failure of the, 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 uh, the Carter years is a, a great examination of political corruption, urban decay, uh, the 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 right you know the economic decay, uh, questioning about America's place in the world, um, the sort of the old certainties of the post World War Two order sort of beginning to unravel, détente the unraveling of détente with the Russians, oh sorry the Soviets, uh, and it it all feeds into those movies uh, very much. Uh, so I've been, my wife and I have been looking at that. We I think we saw the China Syndrome as well, which was oh yes. Uh, which uh, Michael Douglas has got a magnificent beard. I'd love to have a beard like <laughs> Michael Douglas, but um, I, my wife keeps on telling me that I should shave more frequently. So, uh, being a good husband, I do. Uh, the other stuff um, I've been watching uh, with my wife, um, we watched the uh, the O.J. Simpson uh, ten-parter, yes, so which campy in parts, a little bit campy in parts, but. Thoroughly entertaining and maddening at the same time. I mean, the uh, prosecution team afterwards, uh, probably during the trial, came in for an absolute hiding for the way they conducted the, their case and, you know, how could you lose a supposedly unlosable uh, case like that? But I suppose at the time they thought it was a slam dunk case and the, the, the way they presented their case, they believed, you know, fully that the jury 
uh, <laughs> would, 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 go, would side with their version of events. Cuba Gooding Jr. did, did well enough, but the real sort of stars of the show were, um, and I'm going to forget names here, but uh, John Travolta, Travolta. Yeah. and the fellow who played Robert Kardashian from uh, his name's David from, Schwimmer. Yeah, Schwimmer from Friends. They were quite quite good. Mm. The woman who played the lead, um, prosecutor, uh, Marsha, yeah. something or other, and her um, her uh, her black colleague were, were very good. With something like that, where they sort of there's the entertainment value that you, I suppose you need. There is a documentary series called OJ Made in America, which is garnering rave reviews at the moment, which is just being released. For the documentary side of things, that's the way to go. If you want to be entertained, uh, the, the OJ series is great. But I, you would you should keep in mind that the whole genesis of that is that two people going about their lives were horribly slaughtered uh, by someone. Uh, the jury's jury said it wasn't OJ. Everyone else says it was. Um, Keep in mind that, that, that a tragedy gave birth to your entertainment, so that should temper your enjoyment a little bit. But uh, as a as a piece of Americana, those of us old enough uh, to have remembered the the coverage of the trial, uh, it was it, it was it was you know great theatre in a sense, um, and uh, to have it sort of to be able to revisit it again was uh, was was pure entertainment. Uh, like you, we watched Line of Duty three because we'd fallen in love with uh, the first two series when they came out. Um, Started basically inspired by a podcast uh, by a couple of people involved with the West Wing. Uh, my wife and I have begun from the beginning to watch the West Wing, so we watched the first two episodes uh, recently, and um, it's very evident very early on that the 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 series hits the ground running from from episode one. It's not like a lot of TV shows that take you know a few episodes to find their feet, uh, and there's a bit of chopping and changing and uh, removal of cast members and shuffling around. The West Wing is fully formed from episode one. The fast pace, the walk and talk, the, it, it, it says, it's basically saying to the audience, we're gonna treat you as adults. We're not gonna talk down to you. We are gonna rely on you to keep up. We're gonna rely on you to keep up with what we're talking about. And if you don't understand the polit- politics, go off and research and come back to us. Aaron Sorkin, uh, is you know he's a great writer uh, as you know other series like the newsroom have shown like uh, I think the social network he wrote, he wrote that he's, he's he's one of America's preeminent um, storytellers uh, so yeah we're really looking forward to getting back into the West Wing I've dug up DVDs and all that sort of thing but the main thing I have been watching yeah, I've continued my slog well, it's not really a slog actually it's actually very enjoyable my trek through the X Files. Uh, currently, I've just finished season five, which means that I've also finished the first X Files movie, Fight the Future. The X Files is just great. I really enjoy it. It 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 rests, it rides, its success rides on the work of Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. And as I've said before, the real star, the acting preeminent, the preeminent actor in the show is Gillian Anderson. She is, and she was like in her mid-20s at that point, late-20s, she is a startlingly good actress. And they've moved on from sort of the procedure, the more procedural aspects of the, the conspiracy or the Monsters of the Week of the first two or three seasons, and they've made it a more personal story for both of them. Mulder in season four or five, uh, season five, has sort of um, come to the realisation that perhaps... The conspiracy that he's been chasing down is, in actual fact, a, a, a fake, a fake ad by the government to divert popular attention from other more nefarious deeds. While Gillian uh, um, Anderson Scully uh, has gone through a cancer scare, cancer treatment, near death, the discovery that um, there's a bit of melodrama in this that uh, whilst she was kidnapped, her, uh, her over, uh, ovary, uh, ovaries were harvested and a clone daughter of hers was uh, was created and she discovered that daughter and then the daughter died so there's there's elements of melodrama in there but it's it's a startlingly good sh- series uh there's some really great episodes a lot of people say that um as the series progresses the mythology becomes more convoluted which it does uh but the stories actually get get better there's a, there's, a, there's a lot more depth to them there's a lot there's, there's some really great writing there's one um episode called kill switch 
which is co-written by um, I think it's William Gibson who did uh, he did uh, did one of the first cyberpunk stories, which is an excellent excellent episode. But um, I'm really looking forward now to seeing series seven. They relocate to Los Angeles. Uh, the series they were in Vancouver, like the uh, the TV movie. And uh, at this point, the company's got about a season and a half to go before he leaves, sort of semi permanently. And uh, and then the series sort of uh, finishes uh, in, at the end of uh, its ninth season. So really looking forward to to, uh, to finalising that in the next couple of months. Mm. That's uh, going back to the West Wing. The West Wing Weekly is the podcast which uh, is hosted by Josh Molina, who played Will. Uh, it's a great example of a uh, DVD commentary that works because it's actually somebody who is uh, who was actually part of the show. Actually, although uh, Will wasn't part of series one, two, four, I think, but uh, he, he comes get, four. Yeah, he gets um, obviously he gets his co-stars in on the uh, on the conversations. But the, the the more recent episode was the West Wing reunion live from the ATX, which I'm uh, listening to now. And uh, is what a, episode? It's is a, that the podcast? What episode is that? It is number. This says West Wing reunion, double O zero O one. So, that's a great podcast. I've been catching up with them as well. Same with uh, Fat Man on Batman, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. He he can talk. He does talk. And it's always entertaining, isn't it? I mean, it's great to have um, a fan who's also inside the industry. Yeah. So he can give you those insights. And I don't. it basically is unfiltered insights as well. So. Yeah, that's right. Now, speaking of talk, we've actually failed in our quest to be under 60 minutes. So uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, next episode, we're thinking uh, we've got another six-month slog to go. <laughs> Why don't we do a full-length uh, drag from the archives, Rob? What do you reckon? Uh, what year will we be looking at, Mark? We're still trying to get through bloody 1988. So I might just pick out some of the choicer ones of that uh, yep. of that particular e- year and then we'll move mm-hmm. on to 1989 so I might try and uh, speed things up a bit because I feel like we're stuck in 1988 well no 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 that was a better year for Doctor Who so yeah, yeah. started off with a high all right then so once again thank you very much for listening to the 42 to Doomsday podcast and uh, I as always uh, well, not really Statler but more often Rob I'm very much Waldorf okay. I haven't been happy with Doctor Who since 1984 Rob <laughs> really not 1963 went off the boil for me so. <laughs> We'll speak with you again soon, folks. All the best. Bye-bye. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.